Three girls are moving next door. Samantha, please begin. Sophia Robb should get EGOT just for pretending to play the piano in this movie. <laughs> like, those scenes were among the most egregious things I've ever seen. What do you mean? As a I'm pianist? A, yes. Yeah. I mean, she had me fooled. I was like, wow, did she learn how to play piano for this? I mean... <laughs> <laughs> the look you're giving me could murder. <laughs> Welcome, everyone, to American Girls, the podcast. This is the podcast where we're reliving the American Girls series book by book. I'm Mary. I'm uh, Nellie O'Malley. I mean, Allison. Wow. Interesting flex, really. Truly interesting flex. Um, Allison, we've come together today to talk about, you know, perhaps one of the greatest cinematic wonders of the early aughts, if not ever. This film cost me $3 on Prime, but what I learned is that fast fashion can cost a finger. Whew. And you know what? Like, I also refuse to pay money for this film, and that's all I'll say about that. But what I learned is that, like, the film was free, but the trauma is going to cost me for the rest of my life. We're talking in this episode about Samantha, an American Girl holiday uh, cinematic achievement, I'm going to say, from 2004. (laughs) I I loved it. We do have to talk about just as a little insight. So there are times where like I go MAA on texting. This is like this is known. And out of nowhere, you text me this past week and you say we're going to be watching an Eleanor one woman show on the Internet. Unbeknownst to me on Twitch. Will you be attending? Yes. Yes, definitely. Yes. And I said, yes. And I stopped what I'm doing, which, you know, I'm usually like missing in action truly during the day. Sure. And I buy a $15 ticket. I would have paid 150 for this show that you pulled me into. You know what? It's like, here's what happened. Anna found out about this because she attended a performance at this local community theater years ago and is on their email list and basically hit me up and was like an Eleanor Roosevelt one woman show your thoughts and I was like buy the tickets right now point one point two I immediately got on the phone to you and was like clear your calendar I don't think I offered you the option I was just like this is happening it was honestly wonderful and I miss theater I miss going out and seeing these kinds of things and I love local theater I was just gonna say like we we both love community theater and our friend Tanya hey Tanya used to perform in a community theater and it was like I felt like I was sort of an honorary member of the troupe because it was like (laughs) we were hearing about the background like drama behind the scenes at the rehearsal and then we would show up and see their performance and it was like always wild but also yeah. like genuinely good like I have dragged Allison to see a production of Grey Gardens like essentially in a living room <laughs> and it was so amazing like the quality was a plus 
So there were 500 people watching this performance, which was very exciting. Actually, I was feeling hopeful like theater will well, hopefully hold on survive. a second. You have to back up because first we meet the executive director of the theater in her living room, giving yes. us an intro on Zoom in which she lets us know that the playwright has just like the previous day cut 25 minutes of material. So this work is very much like in progress. Yeah, and I think it was well worth it. I think it was very smart of them to put this on Twitch. We have to just talk about like a few things. <laughs> if you think we've talked too much about Eleanor Roosevelt on this podcast to date, nope. this is about to get really bad for you. So nope, just nope, hit fast nope. forward. Um, first of all, no. Second of all, no. There was so much about the Roosevelt's dog in this. It was a shock to me because I don't like to think of them as dog people. That was just very surprising. This masterpiece opened with her in her grave, which is how it should always open. But if she wasn't at her grave, that's what was like the wild she? great. Well, I mean, okay, like, <laughs> I mean, that's the depth of this play is like, I truly don't have the answer to that question. But I will just say that like her actual stated location was in Washington, D.C. at the monument or statue to clover adams question mark i believe so and her own life yes and there were flashbacks because she is in fact interred in hyde park correct right so you don't we never got a clear explanation and it's like good for the playwright for forcing us to meditate on that about why exactly honor chose to her spirit to sit at the foot of this grave to a photographer who took her own life Well, and we get a lot of mentions to the fact that only in death are she and Franklin actually sharing space again. Here's my thing about content about Eleanor. If you're trying to make it about Franklin, just stay home. It's not about Franklin. Decenter Franklin. Like, I'm not saying I'm not here for Franklin content, but it's a separate journey. And let me say this, and this is unsolicited. Stop talking about Fala, please. (laughs) Now, who's Fala for those who maybe Fala is their dog who was named for, I don't know, by FDR, I think by after one of his ancestors. And, you know, FDR was very close to this dog and the dog ends up like being interred in the Rose Garden that was just ruined. I mean, renovated by Melania Trump, putting that out there. Anyway, this dog got a White House burial, just saying that literally no presidents have. And yet this dog's in the Rose Garden. This dog could not matter less to the narrative of Eleanor Roosevelt's life. Just saying. Like, and yet Fala gets brought up. Like, you you just are getting deep with Eleanor on, like, emotional stuff. Like, you can imagine the daddy issues coming out to play. The Alice Roosevelt stuff is happening. And then I don't know where she'd be like, and Fala was, you know, playing and getting in this and that. And it's like, I don't care what the dog was doing. Like, take us back to the dad stuff. This woman started a CCC civilian conservation corps companion called she 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 and you think the interesting part is that she owned a dog you're wrong so wrong zero you don't get it honestly if you don't get it you don't deserve to get it at this point and yet i would love for the you know i feel like in a way we're sort of like we're boosters of eleanor like she hasn't asked from beyond the grave or her spirit or whatever's happening with that but Wow. It was like she was sort of telling us her life story in front of a grave that was grave that was not her own. And basically it was like, why didn't my husband ever love me? Like, why did my dad abandon me? And it's like, I don't really care about that. Like, can we talk about Hick for a second? 
The one downside of this play was that like Hick was not centered enough. No, and I'm going to say something controversial, which is I think that Eleanor and Cornelia probably knew each other. <gasps> oh my they could God. be they could be peers and contemporaries. I don't have an exact date of birth for Cornelia. I don't think she would ever be so sloppy as to let that slip because that's not who she is as a woman. Do you think but, she also attended the Academy of Madame Souvest? Yeah, I do. Oh, my God. Wow. And then both of them were like, yeah, I mean, Alice thinks she's so hot at this debutante ball, but like you and I are the ones who have spent some time in a settlement house, if you know what I'm saying. I think Susan Adler put it all on the walls for us. And it just, it it wasn't something to that book. (laughs) Well, I have to, because a lot of what goes on in this film is Susan Adler inspired having to live with that and I mean at one point we do see Samantha practically starve or malnourish a child and I did wonder if Eleanor or Jane had been afoot if we could have perhaps addressed that in a different way honestly like among the many many questions I have about this film many of them revolve around the cast some of them are concerning differences others have to do with production of this film I'm thinking back to you know, I don't want to say simpler times, but perhaps like summer of 2019 when we watched the Felicity feature film for oh the God. first time. It feels like 20 years ago. It does feel like 20 years ago. A very different time indeed. Like we saw in that instance, a young Shailene Woodley. We were and are rooting for her. Now we're living Hunger Games. Like it's complicated. Like no it's one saw this coming. Also, it's like, you know, Julia Roberts' memoir hidden in plain sight in that film. Like we blew that wide open. We did. we did. I mean, I don't know that we've received the kind of journalism credentials that we deserve, but Not yet. if I've ever heard a segue to Mia Farrow, that's it. There it is. There All it right, is. I think we have to get into this film. Let's do it. This episode is brought to you by Podcorn. Podcorn is a marketplace connecting podcasters to advertisers for native podcast sponsorships. What does that actually mean? Well, for our purposes, it means that we don't have to run ads on our show for products and services we don't believe in. We take this community really seriously, so we've in an ongoing way been trying to match with products that actually meet our mission and our values and are things that we're proud to support. So Podcorn has been a really wonderful service where we've been able to log on to their site and find a bunch of advertisers who want to work with us that we're excited to work with as well. If you're creator and you're looking for brands that you might want to work with, Podcorn is a great option. They have a marketplace mission to give podcasters transparency, creative freedom, and control. And you never give up exclusive rights to your podcast. Click the link in our show notes to learn how to sign up and to learn more about Podcorn. That's right. So just head over to podcorn.com and get started today. So this film, I was honestly truly delighted to learn, was made for television. It was made for the WB. So, Oh, really? Yes, yes. So it was released by WB in November 2004, 
And it was actually the first in the American Girl film series. So this does predate the Felicity film that we enjoyed so much. And, you know, much like this company, like they're always dreaming, scheming. This was marketed as the holiday film, which is brilliant because it comes out in November. This is three years after 9-11. So it's like we've changed. as. <laughs> are you Mariah Carey? Like, are you citing your cultural productions in relationship to when 9-11 happened? Yes, because I think like the way that New York is represented, like it changes. But there's also some logic to the fact that this was put out just in time for the Samantha Parkington Centennial. It's 1904 in the stories. This is produced in 2004. I'm going to give folks a summary just in case they kind of want to know what goes on in here versus the larger canon of books. Does that make sense? I mean, all I can tell you is that whatever summary is about to happen likely won't make sense because it's working with it's working with tough material. But hit it. It is. Uh, So in 1904, New York, Samantha, a precocious young orphan living with her grandmother, befriends Nellie, the daughter of their neighbor's new servants. The girls become close, but soon tragedy pulls them apart based on the Samantha stories from the American Girl collection. I do want to note that in the Wikipedia entry, only Susan Adler and Valerie Tripp are credited as contributing authors, which I think is very interesting. interesting. And honestly, I don't know why I've chosen to give like some of the skills of my life to investigating this. Proud of you. But I have. Um, one of my new favorite websites, AmericanGirl.Fandom.com. Wow. Thank you. Actually tells us in a bulleted list all of the differences between the books and this film. This particular website says that it has plots and scenes from essentially all of the books, but it actually pulls, I think, a lot from Samantha Saves um, Samantha Saves the Wedding, which is like one of the spinoff yes. materials. Mm. I'll also note that Meet Samantha, Samantha Learns a Lesson, Samantha Saves the Wedding and Changes for Samantha are like the primary source materials, which leaves out the author who is not Susan Adler or Valerie Tripp. And I think that's on purpose. Interesting. Any theories as to why? They didn't want her to make any coin off of this. Damn. I'm not saying... I'm not saying that's Val. I'm saying like, I think this is such a an empire by 2004. Like yeah. Samantha's almost 20 by that point as a product. So they know what's going to work. Right. So they're like, we're not going to spread these royalties outside the fam too much if we don't have no. to. This is an 86 minute film. I would argue it feels longer. Um, it, it felt in the same way that at different times during the Eleanor play, we were texting and basically saying, like, <laughs> I would watch five hours of this. Because at one point I was like, is there going to be an intermission or are we just rolling right through this whole play, which is what happened. I lost track of time, but I was also like, I'm not saying this because I'm worried this is going on too long. I'm saying this because <laughs> I would watch this forever. Whereas yeah. with Samantha, like the same can unfortunately not be said. No, and I want to point out a really important distinction that I think does make a difference in a lot of the summaries, they note that she's befriending Nellie as, quote, the daughter of their neighbor's new servants. Wrong. She is a servant. Like, we see Nellie work so yes. hard in this film. Like, we are not shielded from that at all. There's a scene where she's beating a rug and her sisters are, like, desperately trying to wind yarn. And it's very sad and very intense. 
And I feel like I spent half of this film watching her work. Yes. And also watching Samantha wander up to her while she's working. And when in that scene, she wanders up to her and she's like watching Nellie, like literally with full body strength, trying to beat this rug. And she's like, that looks fun. And Nellie's like, what? Excuse me? Like, huh? <laughs> and it's just like constant juxtapositions of like the naivete and innocence of Samantha and like the really cruel real world reality of Nellie, who's like also parenting her sisters and yes. has all this job experience. Like at one point when they're leaving the factory, which we'll get into, she Samantha's like, are all factories like that? And Nellie's like, yeah, all the ones I've been to are. And it's like, how many have you been to? Like, this is so sad. Well, it, it speaks to that larger point of the series, which is nine looks incredibly different depending exactly. on whose book you're, oh you're reading. God. And part of how we meet Samantha and Nellie in this series is they've they've collapsed quite a few plots. So instead of having all of them go away to a secondary location, um, basically any plots that didn't involve Nellie get cut. So like the people who made this film were Nellie purists. They were like, we will not spend a holiday without her. Nope. We will not go on vacation without her. We will cut Agnes and Agatha. Yeah, Thank I was you. just going to say, if you think we're engaging these twins, I also kind of wondered if that was a copyright issue, if they were like, it's so dangerously <laughs> close to Annie. So like we can't go there like val was like cover my tracks like don't have them in there and they're like no problem That's when, when, when you look back on this series it's basically like the atoms that make up annie got split into two and half of it went to agnes and agatha for their look and mischievousness and the other half went to the orphan plot lines my god um, Notably, Nellie and her sisters are are not quite orphans in this film. They still have a father. And I think that was honestly a better choice. I think a team of lawyers looked at the representation of Uncle Mike O'Malley and they were like, yeah, I'm not going to fly. We don't want a Wahlberg lawsuit. Like we kind of just need to focus. They're like, we need Wahlbergers to supply the American Girl Cafe. So we need some rewrites stat. So I'm going to say this. I think there is one person who was on set who, like, if Eleanor Roosevelt went around, would call the UN Human Rights Commission. I'm like, listening. I think, I think there was a really serious crime committed in this film. Listening, my eyes are very wide. The wig work on this <laughs> film. Okay, almost everyone seemed to be wearing a wig for reasons that were not clear to me. Obviously, I'm passionate about bangs. Anna Sophia Robb, who plays Samantha in this feature film, the work that was done to her head to give her bangs, honestly, they could have called any stylist in the American Girl salon, you yes. know, oeuvre, and they would have done a thousand times better than what was happening with those bangs. I like, I'm really glad you said that because it gave me PTS flashbacks to like PTSD to watch those bangs appear on film yeah. because. As a brunette, and let me just like, I won't even get into this, but she's not even a true brunette. We'll get into that. As a true brunette who had bangs just like that growing up, the day before picture day in second grade, my mom decided to trim my bangs. And she decided, she read that if you use scotch tape, it helps you cut a straight line because that's the bangs that her hair in this is the kind of hair I have, like very fine. So my mom put scotch tape, cuts across the tape. Needless to say, the line was not straight. I went to school the next day for picture day. Everybody was like, wow, did your mom cut your bangs? And I thought they were asking me that because I look so good. So I'm like, yeah, like, yeah, my mom did cut my bangs. And they're like, oh. And then only when I got the picture back, it was like, 
basically like <laughs> zigzag, zigzag. But that's what I felt like I was looking at on screen. And I'm like, we have hair professionals on set, right? Yeah. And I, I think in some ways it made her look doll-like. The way that both Nellie's like very obvious wig mm-hmm. work, like the way that her hair was styled and the way that Samantha's hair was styled, honestly, maybe Pleasant had something to do with this. Subconsciously, all I kept thinking of is she looks like a doll. She did. And, and I even was wondering, like, <laughs> does American Girl sell wigs? And was that a potential line rollout that got thrown out after this movie was released? They were like, we're wigging out, so to speak, because the wigs didn't play well on camera. No one's going to want to buy them. But around this time is when I think Irish Step Dancing transitioned to like full on wig culture. Because when I was doing yes. it, it was like you showed up with your real hair. Otherwise, I would not have been present. And then it was like the wigs come out to play. Yeah. And they're very camp wigs. Like it's obviously a wig. Whereas with this, there was an attempt at verisimilitude that didn't really land, but they tried it. No, and I I think there was something interesting about the fact that like Nellie looked nothing like her sisters, except the other two sisters very clearly looked like relatives. Yeah, it was weird, too, because I read on IMDb that she's a brunette and they made her dye her hair red. Yes. And then the lead is a blonde wearing a brunette wig, correct? Yes. And let's talk about this. I learned that you never call Anna Sophia Rob Anna. She's Anna Sophia. I didn't know that. So I I read, I learned I'm growing. She's thriving. She's an Aquarius. She's doing a lot of work. I wrote in my notes in all caps, this movie is royalty. Interesting. We have Jordan Bridges in the role of Uncle Guard, the role of a lifetime. He took a break from doing every procedural ever on television. Without a to... trace, anyone? <laughs> Indeed, his career. No, I'm kidding. He's doing really well. Mia Farrow. Okay, let's take a beat on that for a second. When she yeah. came on screen, I internally screamed, what in God's name are you doing here? Like, the only, the only sane explanation is... That there was an unexpected home repair. There was an unexpected life event. There was a trip of a lifetime that the budget of which outpaced what she had planned. There was something going on where she was like, God bless this check. I don't care what this is. Thanks. I know what it is. What is it? I put some pieces together. Again, I'm not talking like, you know, when I set my mind to it, like I will do the deep ancestral work i didn't even have to go very far to solve what went on here her father is a famous actor and screenwriter named john farrow okay he's born in february 1904 really okay i'm just gonna put a few pieces together for you so he's born in the year that the early samantha books are set in the same winter not a coincidence to my mind wow one of his earliest like prominent moments in Hollywood history, because he's a very big deal, is writing the screenplay for Around the World in 80 Days, which, of course, is based on the real life exploits oh of Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly. I'm just saying, like, if you can't put these pieces together, like, wow. that's why we're here. I also feel like she was securing her future. Like, she wasn't sure yet. Her son, Ronan Farrow. We won't get into his other ancestral question marks because they're really not that Frank interesting. Frank Sinatra to me. is his yeah, dad. 
of course yeah woody allen did not make that no never no i don't want to get sued so i'll just say that's my opinion allegedly only. allegedly allegedly um she has a son born in 1987 i'm also born in 1987 she's looking at her son ronan and she's like how do i make sure that he will always have like women in his life who admire him she hears about american girl and she's like i'm oh. in stars in the first american girl film like honestly it just all makes sense all the pieces do come together and i feel like she also was like listen i've read these books with my children and i'm aware that there's some question marks about the actual age of grand mary or how we're supposed to interpret her (laughs) and she was like i'm here to make grand mary hot again like it's me i'm here like she plays her as like a very like attractive Like, you could believe this woman's getting two marriage proposals a year from the Admiral. This film, I think, in a lot of ways was, like, braver than the books because it had, like, one writing team. It had Valerie Tripp and a screenwriter, like, just focused on it. So they were able to just make certain plots that stretch across Samantha more consistent. I felt like Grand Mary kind of made more sense in this because she was played a lot younger and like the way that she could be like strict on one side of her face and then sort of like goofy on the other actually felt really coherent to me in the film in a way that in the books it didn't always work. Yeah. And I think too, the movie kind of dropped down and gave us certain moments or filled in certain gaps that the books didn't. And I think one of those with Grand Mary that didn't satisfy in the books, then a weird way you do get a payoff in this movie is that they've collapsed the camp and the the Bedford home. So there's yes. a boathouse on the Bedford property, which Samantha has repurposed as basically a shrine to her parents with all of the stuff that was in the attic at the camp home um, is here in the boathouse. And she goes there when she needs to be alone and they don't use the boathouse because it reminds them of the accident. So like literally this is her domain. And essentially she and Nellie in a very, I thought needy moment, she like forces Nellie to come out with her because she's overheard um, Guard and Grand Mary talking and Guard wants her to come to New York City. And he's like, let me shoulder the burden for you for a while, which is tough t- language to describe Samantha, which actually never gets addressed in the film. No. Moving on. But so she goes get and gets Nellie and is like, come with me. And then because she's showing it to Nellie for the first time, we also get the explanation of like, this is sort of a shrine. These are my mother's things. And the next day when they're found... Grand Mary and Guard come in and it's clearly Grand Mary's first time seeing this shrine and really appreciating emotionally how deep Samantha's grief is and the fact that Grand Mary has remained silent for her own protection like for her own grief she can't speak about her daughter but that's the cost of that silence is Samantha acting out in the form of creating the shrine so you do get that moment of realization on Grand Mary's face of like the effects of her actions on Samantha which I did actually enjoy. I totally agree. I was really watching that scene where you see all of her different items. And unlike in the books, again, because there's the author's, authorship switch several times in between, you know, there's like the holiday where there's kind of the weird lack of discussion about the parents. And then separately, there's the birthday where she's given the crown, but doesn't seem Samantha to me, you know, honestly, kudos to the actress, like felt really emotionally 
stable in the sense of like her emotions made sense to me. Like they felt consistent across the film. Like this is the way a nine to 10 year old girl would like behave and change and process. And I think that's because it was like one confined package versus like, well, here's a few different takes. I also felt like cutting out the entire Christmas plot line and the way that Lydia the doll um, who's named after Lydia the mother is just kind of presented worked really well in the film as a contrast to the book yeah totally I I totally agree with that because in the books actually they never tell you from the jump like they just say like the doll was named Lydia you learn later that her mother's name is Lydia and it's like for you to make that connection yeah there's also so many like little moments such as you know when we first meet Cornelia and the way that she's introduced again like actually really good acting I think on everyone's part like really good acting where the car rolls up and Samantha is kind of realizing that things are about to change and Cornelia makes the grand gesture of giving her the Wizard of Oz and and what we learn will be her favorite book um I also just felt like there's so many scenes where Mia Farrell was able to carry off Grand Mary feeling tenderly towards Samantha, but also being a lady of her time. Like the way she kind of gently reprimands her, but isn't really very harsh with her. Mm -hmm. Um, The kind of heartbreak that Samantha experiences early on, something you already mentioned, is when she overhears her uncle guard, who she just adores, talking about getting married and talking about relieving Grand Mary of the burden of Samantha. And, you know, so Grand Mary can kind of like live her life separate for a while. And this just like absolutely breaks Samantha's heart. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was a really kind of compelling narrative because it lets you understand that Nellie feels like she's a burden to people in one way and Samantha feels like a burden in another way. And that's really what they connect on. And I thought that was just like so well done in the film. Yeah, which is interesting, too, because you can also see their priv- their differences in privilege coming out and how they address that shared feeling of being a burden, which is that Nellie places all responsibility on herself. She asks for mm-hmm. nothing from anybody. And she goes out and basically is like, I failed because I can't get this job or like some, you know, everything is her responsibility, whether it's parenting her siblings or figuring out like the financial survival involved for Samantha, her financial survival is never in question or has any relationship to the degree to which she's a burden to other people. It's like, she's not actually a financial burden to anybody because they have so much money. It's really a burden of like care and responsibility And what's interesting is when she's living in New York and these feelings about being a burden come up again because she's allowed them to live. This is a difference from the books. When she takes them from the orphanage, they're living upstairs for a truly indeterminate amount of time to me. It's (laughs) not four days as in the books. And one of them gets sick and is malnourished and essentially is like dehydrated. And that's what forces Samantha to like blow the whistle on herself But when she comes to them, she's basically like, I know I'm a burden to you. And her evidence is not that she's heard her own uncle, who she so treasures, call her a burden, which I thought was strange. Instead, she cites an event we've never seen, which is her friend, Cornelia's friends at the wedding, saying it's too bad that she's starting her married life. And there's this like eight year old who's going to be like a hanger on. And we never see that moment of the friends sort of like tittering about like, oh, Samantha's a burden to our like newlywed friend. It's weird that they don't want to just go there and say, like, guard said I was a burden. But regardless, 
pun intended, she said she feels confident and comfortable and safe enough in her situation to go to her parental figures and say, hey, you hurt me. Whereas, yeah, it's quick, but we do hear that at the wedding. She's like, I saw them talk to each other, but I didn't hear what they said. She's like going and it's very quick. It's very, very quick. She's like moving between tables and it's not explicitly said like she will be a burden on Cornelia. But basically Cornelia's friends who are in retrospect, probably 21 years old are saying like, can you believe she's starting this marriage saddled with a 10 year old? Ooh, okay. That passed me right by. My apologies. It's no, it's it's but I think that speaks to the point of like it's incredibly subtle, but she her. I think this is why now I like her more and more. Like she's nosy and she's listening in. Yeah. And I think like she's a feelings forward person, which I can certainly appreciate, which is like we see in this film that she's not afraid to cry. We don't see that in the book, which to me feels very honest for like a nine year old kid. And also like she's not afraid to say like this is really confusing and it hurt me that people are talking about me this way. And it opens up a space for her guardians to kind of like have an honest conversation about how they feel about her and reassure her. So it's this nice, like actually parental exchange. It makes you like everyone else, everyone involved in the exchange more, but it does make you feel sad for Nellie because (laughs) Nellie can't go to anybody and say, Hey, like I'm feeling really scared because I don't know how I'm going to feed myself and my sisters or, Hey, I saw a boy put a needle through his thumb in the factory and that really freaked me out and I'm really upset and who can I talk to about that? Instead, we get like the strangest, possibly worst adoption rollout in human history, worse than even the books where they come down on Christmas morning and it's like, (laughs) yeah, we need to get something for Samantha and she says you want to be maids and Nellie's like, we'll be the best maids. Like, thank you. (laughs) And it's like, why? And then he's like, no, we don't need any more maids. And it's like, Oh God, where's this going? And then he's like, we want to adopt you like thumbs up. And it's like, why did you put them through that? I will say also a line I wrote down that really stood out to me was at at least the Rylands were consistently horrific as people. So like Eddie's a, a monster in the book and his mother literally says with a straight face, I expect my help to behave about a nine year old who she has probably, you know, not super legally in her employ. Um, I, I also thought it was really smart the way passage of time was marked in the books without it being overdone. Like, you know that it's a holiday story because that's in the title and you're like moving through seasons. Like we move through a summer and an autumn and she goes back to school and then like we move towards a winter. And I thought there were so many things that were just so tight in this film that we're, we're a smart adaptation of the story. Like there's so many minor characters that come in and out of the Rolodex in the six Samantha books. And here a lot of those people go away. And I think the story is better for it. Mm -hmm. Like, the way that I'll never get over the treatment of Elsa, I will never let that. I won't bring that up. Yeah. But there is no Elsa. There is a Gertrude in this book and Gertrude is like a lot more chill. She's kind of like more knowing in the garden Cornelia household. Like she knows who comes in the back doors. Like she's fine. I really liked her character because it felt like they chose to pick fewer people and to make them more real. I did find the Jesse character a little bit perplexing um, 
a shrewder viewer than I who runs an American Girl page noted that she was made into more of like a generic servant than like a talented seamstress, which I did. I did think is kind of an interesting observation. Like she's probably one of the few characters who's flattened versus getting bigger in the story. Yeah, and it's interesting because instead of like having more of her personal life, she only exists in the story for Grand Mary to scold Samantha that you don't ask the help about their yes. business. Which is a really it's not even like we cut her story, it's like we read it, we did a 180 on her story and, and what we want people to take from it or like the work we wanted to do within the play, so to speak. And I thought the Gertrude piece was interesting too, because she goes from being kind of like a crabby person who is surveilling Samantha and ultimately blows the lid on her like weird attic apartment um, situation (laughs) and instead goes from being like, no, I'm not going to narc on Samantha to the orphanage head person as that crime is she follows them back and accuses them of stealing money, which they didn't. And this and that, she's like, I'm not going to like, she's like, where's Samantha? And she's like, I don't know. Like, not here or like whatever so it's interesting like she also has been repurposed to serve the story but um in a way you might say too like their roles the way that they've been edited for the screenplay just further emphasizes like their subordination as people and as characters Mm. because their personhood was never considered in terms of story edits it was always like what work they could do to push the story forward or to emphasize the characterization of like the people we're supposed to care about air quotes I do feel like to actually do Jesse is a good example, like to do Jesse's story any justice, it would need to be its own film. Yeah. Like to actually even like take that plot line seriously of the fact that she's like working right up until the last day of her pregnancy, apparently giving birth, like living in a fully segregated part of the Mount Bedford community. I feel like that would need to be like 25 minutes or it would be a rehash of the help. Like it wouldn't be interesting. I kept thinking a lot about a show that you and I both love, which is the Nick and really wishing that we could green light a TV show that would be like based on Samantha, but the tone of the Nick and following Mm. the adults in this story and kind of like taking us into different avenues of New York and even Bedford or wherever. And like following what Jesse's life is like following guard would love to see where that takes us. Um, you know, Cornelia in her activist work and being kind of like a privileged white woman who's air quotes helping, but you know, what does the rest of her life look like? I don't know, you know, and, and seeing all of that, but cause there's something about following Samantha around that sort of like loses interest because she's so sheltered mm. that when she, when you actually get to see her walking down the street in the film, you're kind of like, I want to go off on some of these side streets and stop following Samantha and see what's going on in any of these other places. And for a WB film, it definitely kept my attention. I definitely enjoyed it, right? Like it really kind of like had me for the amount of time that it did. Like I would watch an entire film about Frouchy the Fraud, like her literally shoving money into yes. her into her dress. There was also a scene where I felt like the writers and production team were winking at adult viewers. There's like quite a few scenes where Samantha is handwriting something and there's a narration. And it is exactly in the same kind of vein as Sex in the City. <laughs> And I kept picturing her saying, you know, in five to 10 years, like, I couldn't help but wonder, 
was Nellie being distant or was it just the distance between us? Like there are actually (laughs) scenes that feel like that. Um, And the way that she shows kind of like a passing interest in Gertrude and she's like, she needs more time off. And then it's really just that she's trying to like devise a reason to keep her friends around as staff. I was like, whew, there is so much here. Yeah, truly. And even thinking about the WB properties, like in what ways is Samantha kind of a cipher for Rory Gilmore? And was there any advertising to drive Gilmore Girl fans to Samantha? I do have to say a line that I, I had to rewind it to make sure I heard it right. Someone at some point like pulled up an early Wikipedia or Encarta page for this film and they were like, look up what they would have called orphans in 1904 now. Because there's a scene where Nellie shouts to the others, we're wards of the state. <laughs> yep. And then Jordan Bridges in his amazing role as Uncle Guard uses the same exact language where he's like, they are wards of the state. I was like, okay, well, like, unlike Samantha, who is missing parents, but is not orphaned in the sense of like, she has a whole family that cares for her. Like, maybe we could use slightly more chill language. Like, there was something incredibly haunting about this young girl with a terrible wig being like, but we're wards of the state. I mean, I don't know. I I also found the scene where we have to watch a boy be injured on the factory floor by putting a sewing machine through his thumb. I mean, you don't see it, but you hear it happening. Put your name on that list. If you can't write, make an X. Get in line behind them. Yeah, I mean, I sort of wonder, like, who is their historical source for this movie? And was that person on set who was like, wouldn't it be interesting if you changed Orphan to Word of the State? (laughs) So on that factory scene, I feel like what that did, which was disappointing to me, and I get it because it's a film and you need to do things different. I love that the film kind of ends with all of Samantha's family being reunited with her and the way that she does the speech about progress and challenges the narrative by speaking poorly about factories and factory conditions and child labor. What's really disappointing about that though, is when Samantha learns a lesson in book two, she takes her friend's word for it, right? Like Mm. her friend Nellie says, Hey, I've actually experienced this and it was terrible for me. And Samantha takes her word for it and understands. I feel like a bizarre thing that happens in the film, and I get it, it's a visual medium, is Samantha has to see it for herself to Mm -hmm. be changed. And I think that's probably more realistic to how people behave and like the reason people go on mission trips. At the same time, it was so powerful that her learning was experiential in book two and that she didn't need to go to the fifth ward. Like she had this explained to her by someone she trusted. And she said, I'm going to change my mind at nine and a half years old. And I believe you. And like, that was so significant. The way that the factory was sort of like, I felt kind of cartoonish, Mm -hmm. like the man running it was so mean, so over the top. The children were obviously so completely miserable. It's not that it isn't accurate. I just think it was a disappointing way for her to learn versus trusting a friend who came from a different background. Yeah, I think that's a really excellent point because if part of the value that we want to get out of this is sort of like, what does it mean to be a good friend? Like, Mm. 
what does it mean that your friend has told you about this experience and you don't believe them? And, well, and it, she hadn't told her in the film. Right. Cause yeah. And, but I, yeah. So it's like, we were robbed of that moment of like, I don't know. And, and in a way it's like in the books, the experience that she does have is, is seeing the piecework being done in the apartment under Mike O'Malley's apartment in the floor beneath. And that's really interesting because it's really a scene about her privilege. Like she has it in front Mm -hmm. of her face and she can't recognize what's happening because she's just so distant from it. And you kind of wonder like, why did they weigh that that scene was more important than the one in a book? Because also that scene in the factory does ultimately become about her privilege because she cuts to the front of the line. And even when the guys like (laughs) put your mark on the list and get in line behind them, she's like, no, 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 excuse me, sir. Like she knows enough to insist on being taken seriously and, and it's not even a thought or an ex there's no moment where she turns to the women in line ahead of her to say like hey i'm not trying to cut <laughs> you in line you know i just need to ask a question about the whereabouts of my friend she's only thinking about what she needs to get done so yes. in a scene that's really about like sort of showing us the the violence of the factory floor it's also about her privilege and the way that she centers herself totally unconsciously I agree with her kind of like cutting to the front and there was something about it that just like felt very odd to watch because in a way I'm good for this. It's sort of like watching a film about the circus. It's like you're hoping no animals were actually involved, right? Mm -hmm. Like you don't actually want to see this happening. Um, But I think the kind of intimacy of what she saw when she stepped into a tenement house and saw like a whole cluster of children working and and kind of like the trauma of that moment of understanding something about Nellie that was new versus this factory which like really felt like a a kind of like small time production of newsies like Mm -hmm. gone wrong and I was sort of happy that it was obvious the children like weren't really acting at their highest level oh my god but yeah But at the same time, it really did kind of take you out of it. Like, I don't really recommend watching that scene. At the same time, the fact that she happens to be there at like the exact second that there's an incredibly traumatic injury and everyone is screaming and the boss's only reply is that there's a job opening. Like, it it was bizarre. It is cartoonish and caricature-ish. And I think it's just a moment where I was wishing... Like the real act of sharing your privilege in that moment from the filmmaker perspective would have been to keep Samantha out of that. Yeah. And to find a way to almost just like follow. I would have liked like a scene that sort of juxtaposed a morning in Samantha's life at her privileged school versus what Nellie's up to. Like Nellie just disappears and finds a job. But like, what does that look like? How does she navigate the city in a different way? How do people respond to her differently? And yeah, like we just we weren't going to get that. There's a brave critic who stepped out and just like had a few things to say about this film 10 years after it came out. And uh, I just want to read what he had to say. This is from Kevin. Okay. The target audience is so alarmingly narrow. I don't see it appealing to anyone outside of girls that buy the dolls. Like, does he know how big of an audience that is? He's yeah. Okay. Okay, Kevin. Danielle, a super reviewer, says it was really, really good. So, I mean, I'm kind of more like on Danielle's side, I think. I trust her more. I also love that she wrote this review on November 4th, 2008. Like, 
in the wake of the most historic election in our lifetime, she was like, listen, she was like, I have something I have to say. She was like, did we just elect the first black president in United States history? Yes, we did. I spent the night watching Samantha and American Girl Holiday. And God bless you, Danielle. I'm happy for yeah, you. She was like, yes, I can write a review of this film. It's been out for quite she some was time. like, can and will. I do think Samantha was a good choice for the first film because she actually would have really grown up with film. Like the year that she Mm -hmm. was born is considered the first year that actual moving pictures are released in France. And then by the time she's like able to enjoy dates with Nelly, um, I do think that like they would have gone to silent pictures. You know, it's a place to be alone and in a cool room when you get to the air conditioning era. Um, yeah. Do you like that. do you like silent films? Yes or no? I had some traumatic experiences in a film class in college where I had to watch them for three hours. Oh. So I had to watch Birth of a Nation like twice in a row. So, you know, that's what I've been exposed to. I kind of think after once you get it. Yeah, I agree with you. Once is probably too much. Can you write a per- note to my professor about 10 years after the fact. No, (laughs) I also watched that in a course and probably in another. I mean, when you do American studies. Yeah, right. Of course. But I think it is one of those things where you don't necessarily have to see it anymore because I think some of the violence that it does by just continually being in the world is we might be past that now. But we were in college when that super fan wrote her review. So do you like silent films? I do not. I absolutely do not. Wow. How, however, I'm, I go so hard for captions. That is kind of my Maybe other it's thing. coming back for you. Maybe. Do you know what it is? It's, um, it's more the pacing. And I, I also, I really don't like films from like the 1940s and 50s. <gasps> what? I know. I like television of that period. Um, there's something about it that just, consistently strikes me as feeling very uncanny and strange and it bothers me i i honestly can't articulate it past that there's just an uncanniness to it that i don't like well i think it's like films past the late 60s and 70s were going for like cinema verite and all of that like actually appearing true to life or realistic and people in the 30s and 40s were like this is a film i'm a movie star this is happening like yeah. Warren Bacall and Catherine Hepburn, like, you think they were trying to, like, drape themselves over a piano and, like, seem every day? Like, I don't think so. I just watched Woman of the Year with Anna a couple weeks ago because she'd never seen it. I'm a big Catherine Hepburn person, even though it's complicated. I love, 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 love Golden Age of Hollywood movies. And they're absolutely wild. And the whole time you're watching it, you are like, I'm watching someone act. But yes. I also don't care about that because I enjoy things that are camp and over the top. So for me, it's like, it's sort of like watching a drag show almost, but I see your point. I see where you're coming from. I was kind of shocked when I looked up the best films of 2004, you know, Lay it when on this me. was released on television. So this film is not on the list, which kind of surprised me. Mm, weird. Very weird. So I thought that was kind of weird, but this is the year that the girl next or girl next door came out. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay, I'll give you million dollar baby. I will also Maybe. give you that. Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Never been for me, but I'm proud of people who like it. Um, honestly, this was a very, very good year for film. Scooby-Doo 2. Wow. A classic. 
um, National Treasure, which I just watched for the first time very recently and was Congrats. rather stunned. Yes. Rather stunned by it. I mean, this was the era of Shrek 2. So honestly, Wasn't in that mean context. Girls also 2004? I don't. I think we graduated high school. Hold on. I graduated from high school in 2004. Oopsie. You, I believe, are correct that it is 2004. Yeah. I mean, to me, what like, a year. That's the foundational classic that we're enshrining in the Library of Congress archives. I'm like, fine with that. Samantha and Mean Girls, even though like Tina Fey, it's like we've all done some redressing of certain things Tina Fey has put out through 30 Rock and whatnot. I still think, and even Mean Girls, but there are certain lines in that. Like, I'm a cool mom is something I say all the time. Yes. Also, Nellie. Speaking of Tina Fey, problematic. Nellie wears a kimono at one point in this film. Oh my God, what the heck was that about? The, between the wig work and the things going on with that, I was like, it's probably just not my place to say. Um, I think what I've learned from this film and from TikTok, and if you haven't seen the TikToks about Uncle Guard, he was responsible for some awakenings for people. Sure. So I think like that role alone, like Jordan Bridges has a lot to be proud of when people think of his family's acting legacy. It's like you were in the American he, Girl Samantha and you know what? movie. I love there's a, a moment with his costuming where speaking of Golden <laughs> Age of Hollywood, where he is consoling like he and Samantha are actually having a real heart to heart on the lawn about like Cornelia not replacing her in his life, like that she's going to yeah. remain very important. At, in this foundational scene, he's wearing a gray suit that when he and he's sitting down. So you're actually you can see his socks yes. and his and his shoes. And what's very impressive to me was he's actually costumed like Fred Astaire and that his um, pants and his socks and his shoes are the identical same very specific shade of gray. And I was like, this is like Fred Astaire who wanted to continue the line of his legs for dancing purposes. All I'm just saying, I was like, Wow guard like i don't know that you came out with the car in the film but like your your clothes told the story thank you god bless i would love to say that that's the last we're gonna be talking about guard but i'd be very wrong sure isn't uh we will be taking this on further allison do you want to describe what we have planned I would love to. So every time we've taken on a new character, we've done something slightly different in terms of fan fiction, going all the way back to Felicity with writing and sharing. And this time we're doing, of course, the guard zine, uh, exact title TBD. Mary will be using her considerable zine making skills. We would like if you could send us materials, they can be electronic, sent to us in the usual places, or you can mail to our P.O. box, preferably by September 21st, 2020, so that we are able to put together that guard zine for our September 28th episode, which will also be a mailbag. So if you have questions about the show about anything related to Samantha, a comment you'd like us to share. You can also send us questions about the mail because we are going to be having a male historian, like a good one, M-A-I-L, historian on the show. Interesting. So I just had to be clear because I, I really that detail. I thought we were okay. getting something else. Okay, wow. Okay. Um, like a man on the show? Yeah, I mean, I thought you were like Oh, no, I mean, a man can be on the show, but just that wasn't like a priority for this. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, thank you for that clarification. Needed that. Um, Yeah, so for the zine, we really (laughs) want any content that you want to throw at us. If you have a creative bent, if you want to draw a scene for us to go into the zine, that's great. 
If you want to make a listicle of some kind about Uncle Guard, awesome. If you want a personal essay about your Saturn, great. Or about your car, or about car culture, or about car history. I mean, I don't really know much about that, but I'm putting that out there. If you want, like, if you want to write a fan fiction, if you want, like, a flash mm-hmm. scene of a scene that you wish had been in these books, we welcome that as well. So, as Allison said, get in touch with us through the usual digital means, through snail mail at our P.O. box, and I'm going to produce something that I will make freely available. I think I'll make a digital copy that people can get from our website, and maybe I'll make a few physical copies. We'll see. But um, I'm very excited about that. And, of course, with the mailbag episode, we love taping those, so ask us any and all of your questions mm-hmm could be truly about anything, um, including a questions for our male expert. Yes, M-A-I-L. Okay, yeah, that's a good not point. chain, Not chain mail. Okay, yeah, not yet. Also, 4% of our listeners are men, so I should just wow. to clarify. Shout out to you, 4%. That's a lot of people, you. though. Yeah, I mean, sure. You know, thank you for being here. I uh, appreciate you. And, you know, maybe this scene is your time. I don't know. I, I don't know either. I, I won't make assumptions, but I'm looking forward to it. We have a lot of good Samantha things still planned. Um, and our Patreon this month, if you're able to support us over on there, is a diary from a young woman who is confined on the Mayflower. It's the Dear America. Wait. Oh, boy. I've been rereading. It's uh, Remember Patience Whipple's Diary. She names the diary. It's super weird. Uh, And she's nauseous most of the time. So if you're experiencing uh, quarantine-induced anxiety nausea, do not recommend. But it's otherwise a good story. So, And we're going to be re-watching 1982's Annie. We haven't announced our date yet. We're going to do it in the next few days. So you can do a watch along with us, which we absolutely love to do. So, yeah. I mean, Allison, how can people get in touch with you if they have any hot takes on the Samantha film, on Uncle Guard, on anything? They can find me at Allison Horrocks on Instagram and Twitter. And you can follow the show at A Girls Pod on Twitter. Um, also, American Girls Podcast on Instagram and American Girls Pod at Gmail. We're easy to find on our website. And if people have that guard content ready to go or if they just need to reach out to you, where should people find you, Mary? You know, I love hearing from everyone on Twitter at Mary Mahoney123 and on Instagram at Mimi Mahoney. And thank you to all my pen pals who have written to me. I'm still writing back to you. And people who write to the P.O. Box, I'm going to write back to you. Might take me a minute, but it's happening. I made a little postcard and I'm sending that to everybody who, you know, I hear from. So thank you very much.